Let's see, first of all, how you did on the uh, top three villains of the top ten. Let's see if you got the top three villains of all time by Mojo. Ready? Number three, Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. Number two, The Joker. Yeah, anybody get that one? Number one movie villain of all time, Darth Vader. How many of you at least got that right? Raise your hand. How many got all three right? Well, you're not going to get anything for that. But anyway, that's great that you did that. Now, I'll tell you why I did that. As I was thinking about, uh, I love movies and all of us love villains. Matter of fact, I think there's an honorable mention that was not on there uh, that I think is in the top three. If you grew up during the Wizard of Oz years, the Wicked Witch of the West and those monkeys, I don't know about you, but that kind of creeped me out. Now, here's an interesting thing for True Pursuit. The woman who played the Wicked Witch of the West, true story, do you know what her occupation was before she was an actress? She was a kindergarten teacher. Yeah. I think I had her. I don't know if you got, okay. But if you were to list the villains from the New Testament, so just kind of run through your mind think, who would be the villains in the New Testament? Here's who I think they would be. It's just me. Satan, always tops the list. Then there's Legion, that's his team. Uh, Herod the Great. Uh, I saw Brad here this morning, so uh, Brad Pontius, I mean Pontius Pilate, um, the Roman soldiers, Judas, the Pharisees, Ananias, and Sapphira. But I got to be honest, I think Saul, to me, is at the top of that list. How many would agree, right? You don't have to agree with me, but, and here's why I think Saul's at the top of that list, is this guy was so completely focused on wiping out Christianity from the very beginning um, I really think he was, you talk about an enemy of the cross, this guy was an enemy of the cross. So I think it's important, first of all, as we get into, if you want to take your scriptures and turn over to Acts 9, to look at, as I would say, his resume. Let's look at why this guy, to me, was not just a villain, uh, but was very powerful. First of all, here's what we know. He was born and raised in Tarsus. Now, Tarsus is the uh, home of a great university. Matter of fact, I think it, it uh, threatened... Um, and rivaled any university from Athens. He also, uh, in Tarsus, has, uh, has formed agriculture and commerce. He was a devout Jew. Uh, many scholars think that his father, Saul's father, was actually a Pharisee, and he was also a Roman citizen. So here's this guy from Tarsus being raised in a Jewish faith, but yet he had the citizenship of a Roman, which meant that he could go anywhere in that time in the world as he grew up. He was mentored, and this is really important, by Gamaliel. Now, let me tell you about Gamaliel. He was on the Sanhedrin, and again, many scholars said, was probably the most brilliant rabbi of his time. Now, why is that important? Now, this is mind-boggling to me. I remember years ago reading a book called Velvet Elvis, and there's a chapter, and it talks about what these young uh, men went through to be a Pharisee. So when you read in the Bible and Jesus would say confront a Pharisee, you need to understand how brilliant these individuals were. So here's how the school went. Here's how the school worked. Uh, rabbis were constantly looking how young people were memorizing scripture. And so by the age of 10, they were looking for 10-year-olds, are you ready for this, who had already memorized the Torah, which is the Pentateuch. So take your Bibles out. And I want you to flip through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That would be memorizing that section of the Bible by 10 years old. 
I mean, I was lucky at 10 if I could memorize the Cardinals starting lineup. You know what I'm saying? So imagine that. So then they would take that group, and they would put them in another group, and they would start memorizing and learning the rules of law. And you know by 15 what they were able to memorize? The entire Old Testament. Okay, now that's just memory. That isn't everything else. Then at age 15, rabbis then would look out, and they would take the best of the best. And they would go to a young man and say, I think you are gifted to be a a rabbi, and so you are going to go with me everywhere that I go. Matter of fact, they had a phrase for that, and the phrase was, you will have the dust, excuse me, the dust of the rabbi. It means everywhere that rabbi goes. So the sharpest, most brilliant mind of that first century looked out and saw this young man saw and said, you're going to go everywhere I go. That's the kind of guy we're dealing with here. And what Saul did, one other thing that is interesting, Saul was not married, and he loved to travel. Now, why is that important? I want you to think about that. He didn't go home every night and receive what I'll call encouragement from his wife. You know what I'm saying? He didn't have that. He didn't have somebody every day that he's sharing his vision with that would say, you know, I I don't know if you want to go down that trail. This guy is so completely focused on wiping out Christianity. And here's the other thing. He'll travel anywhere to do it. Now, I want you to think about why that makes him, in my opinion, the villain beyond villains. Now, turn with me, and we're going to start in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. Meanwhile, Saul was still uh, breathing out, what's it say? Murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that he found there he belonged to the way, whether men or women, that he might take them as prisoners back to Jerusalem. So let's just get the picture here. Paul is, this isn't a guy who's going out and and randomly choosing Christians and and wiping out individuals. He he had done that with Stephen in Acts 7, okay? This is a guy that is so calculated, and he's putting together a strategy. And the strategy is, if I get to Damascus, and I have all the legal papers, I can round up all these so-called believers called the way. I can round all of them up at the same time, and then I will take them back from Damascus to Jerusalem, and we'll wipe this thing out all in one clean sweep. And to do that, man, he was willing to travel over 200 miles to get to Damascus. Now, let me just share something from my life, because I think some of you can probably relate to this a little bit. A couple of years ago, I actually have a bucket list of things that I have always wanted to do. And a couple of years ago, one of my buddies is here, Chad, uh, a group of us went down on the Appalachian Trail, and I've always wanted to hike on the trail. And so what we did intentionally is we, we started in the town of Damascus, Virginia, and went out about 30 or so miles and hiked back into the town of Damascus. And there was a huge storm that was rolling in, so we had to cut a day short and reroute the last day. The last day we hiked, I don't know, Chad, 40 or 50 miles, I don't know what it was, but I think it was about 17 miles And I can honestly say the most physically demanding day that I've had on this earth so far, okay? But I remembered as we were walking into Damascus, I just remember thinking where I was at in my life and the struggles that I was having. And you know how it is when you're at the edge of physical fatigue, you start thinking about every area of your life, and that's kind of what I was going through that day. But as I was also hiking to Damascus, I came across these hikers called thru-hikers. Anybody know what a thru-hiker is? These are the nut jobs that hike the entire Appalachian Trail, 2,075 miles. And so if you talk to the, and they don't talk long, they're on the move. So, but if you talk to them 
And this is just my uh, summation of talking to those individuals and reading on the Appalachian Trail. There's two groups of people that walk the entire trail. The first group are folks that are running to something. They're trying to figure something out in their life. They're trying to figure out the what's next in their life. So they block about six months and they do everything they can searching out for truth. You want to guess what the second group is? They're running from something. Something has completely wiped them out in their lives and they just have to clear their head. Now I got to tell you, my guess is those same two groups are here this morning. Some of you came here this morning and you're running to something. You're trying to figure out, God, what's the next step for my life? And some of you, you're running from something. You've been so hurt. You've been so devastated by something, and you're just trying to get it together. And you know what I love? That's called church. That's called the body of Christ. That we come together and we try to figure out what our next steps are, and sometimes we just need somebody to hold us and say, I don't, I don't really care what my next step is. I'm just trying to breathe again. I'm just trying to live life again. Where are you on your road to Damascus? I read this amazing quote. I love C.S. Lewis. And if you know C.S. Lewis and his story, he was an atheist. And he came to, to God, you know, really kind of late in his life. And he reminds me a lot of Saul. He was just brilliant. And he reflected, in, as he was sharing his testimony, he reflected on what it was like as God was pursuing him. And I love this. So here's his letter to God, basically. Here's what he said to God. To the great angler playing his fish, to the cat chasing a mouse, to the pack of hounds closing in on a fox, and finally to the divine chess player maneuvering into the most disadvantageous positions until in the end he concedes checkmate. In other words, he's saying... God is in the saving business, and God did everything to keep showing up in my life, and I thought I was in control, but you know what? I was never in control, and he kept pursuing me until finally one day, by choice, I said, God, I surrender to you, and it was as if you heard God's voice say, checkmate, and I love that. Where are you this morning? Again, on your road. If you're headed to Damascus, what are you dealing with in your life? right now. I saw this video, and I, I want to encourage you to go online, and you can Google this. It's called I Am Second, and there's, I can't tell you, probably 17 or 20 of these testimonies. This is one that really, I thought with the, with the uh, Indy 500, I wanted to pick a race car driver, uh, but I want you to listen to this testimony of how God got Daryl Waldrop's attention. I'd always told my wife uh, that you can't you can't get hurt in one of these People things. People do something stupid. They're not as smart as I am. They're not as good a driver as I Coming am. Coming off turn four, and I got nerfed. Spun backwards. Went into the inside wall. Bam! And it knocked me out. You always talk about timing when you're an athlete. Dr. Cooper, the accident, uh, the success I'd had in the prior two years, uh, things just started kind of snowballing in my mind. I said, you know, I've had all this success. I've done all these things. I'm, I'm on the top of my game, but you know what? I, 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 could, I, could have been, I could have been dead. I raced at Richmond. I had no recollection of being there. I raced at Rockingham the next week. Had no recollection of being there. I said, honey, where have I been for the last couple of weeks? 
It wasn't until the third week after the wreck at Daytona uh, that I finally woke up. When I finally came to and I realized what had happened to me, it scared the hell out of me. I started searching for the Lord. On a July night, hot, no air conditioning, sweating, crying in the hallway, on my knees, Dr. Cooper, Stevie, and I, and uh, he prayed that, uh, that the Lord would come into my life, and, and he did. And uh, 1983 was an incredible year. Wasn't so great on the racetrack, but personally, uh, in my relationships with my wife and with everybody else, uh, my life took a huge turn. And that's something I learned. If you don't own success, you wouldn't have success if it wasn't for Jesus Christ. He owns success. The difference in him and you is he wants to share it. You want to keep it. You want to keep it for yourself. It's all about me, what I can do, what I've done. With Jesus, it's all about what he has done. You can do all things through him, not with him, not when you get finished, maybe recognize him. You can do all things through him. You know what my reward was? It wasn't another championship. It was, finally, that people said, we like DW. He's a great guy, he's had a great career, and I was voted most popular driver in 1989 and 1990. In my mind and in my life, uh, it was was almost like a, a reward for all those things that I'd left behind and where I was headed. When you learn to put him first in everything you do and give him the glory and uh, the praise, your life's gonna be a whole lot better off. I'm Darrell Waltrip, and I am second. It's interesting in this amazing story with Paul, Saul who becomes Paul, You follow along starting in uh, verse 4, so turn over with me to Acts chapter 9, and let's pick up the rest of the story because it's, it's an unbelievable story. We know that Paul's on the road. It says he went to the high priest, and he asked him for the letters for the synagogues, and then you drop down to verse 3, and as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground. And he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Let's read that together. Verse 4. And he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, Darrell Waldrop in his story, and here's interesting uh, side note. Uh, We were talking about the message this week of meeting with Tom, and he said, this year, Tom was at the uh, Washington, D.C. prayer breakfast, and Waldrop spoke at this prayer breakfast. And he said, uh, interesting thing about Waldrop, he shared this exact testimony, and then he paused, and he said, for everybody here, and by the way, he's sitting by the President of the United States, but everybody here, I just want you to know, I believe in Jesus Christ, and I believe in heaven, and I believe in hell, and I believe that if you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're going to go to heaven, and if you reject him, you're going to hell. Now, that's Darrell Waldrop today. So that story hasn't gone away. Now, here's something I want you to think about. Waldrop said, I was going through my life, I was at the top of my game, but yet I was completely empty, and I hit a wall. And I got to tell you that everybody is going to hit a wall in their life. And you know what that wall is called? There's a book, again, I read a while back. It's called Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby. 
in that Blackaby says that everybody is going to enter a season in their life that he calls a crisis of belief. Here's what he says. God's invitation for you to work with him always leads you to a crisis of belief that requires faith and action. In other words, you're going through life, and there will come a point when you have to make a decision about your faith. Not your parents' decision. It's not your grandparents' decision. It's your decision. And how does that decision come about? Through a crisis of belief. There is something that is going to knock the spiritual snot out of you, and then you've got to make a decision. And it's not one or two of us in this room. It's going to happen to all of us. There's these things that come along in life, and I can tell you from uh, Marie and I have been in ministry together now over 30 years, and we have sat with so many individuals over the years that have hit this wall. Sometimes that wall is health scares. Sometimes we've sat down and we've cried with people who are going through divorce. Sometimes it's just a moral failure. Maybe it's a health scare. It's a breakup. It's a car accident. It's cancer. And I've sat at the, the bed of many folks over the years that it's death and dealing with losing someone you love. That wall is there, and that wall is real, and it is a crisis of belief. And when you get to that point, you are just like Saul. You are vulnerable, you are blind, and you are searching for truth. And if you notice that amazing question, and that is a powerful question, and that is, who is this? He wants to know, who is this that's blinded me? And do you notice what Jesus says? What? Why are you persecuting me. So why is that so important? Because at that moment, it became personal. This isn't some random theory. This is Jesus Christ looking straight into his eyes, blinded, and he's quivering, and he's crying out, Lord, and he said, okay, why are you persecuting me? It's the same question when we go through crisis of belief. Why are you messing with me? Why are you throwing me under the bus? Because, see, we all have to come to grips with that. When we live a life apart from God and he is pursuing us, we're throwing him under the bus. We're just saying, listen, I don't need to listen to you anymore. And what I love is he just confronts him straight on. It isn't that he doesn't love him. He does love him. Is it that he doesn't see the potential? He does see the potential. What he's saying is, what are you going to do right now? Now that you're in this crisis, now that your plans have dramatically changed, now that you're on this road to Damascus, you got to understand something. You were blind, and now you want to see. But here's the deal. What are you going to do about it? And it's the same question for all of us. When we have these crises of beliefs in our life, when we are so crippled emotionally, what are we going to do about it? And you know what I love about this? From that point forward, when when Saul's converted into Paul, from the rest of that in verses 5 through 9, when he is converted, from that point forward, every time he shares this story, he's not afraid to share the B.C. moments of his life. Do you know what I mean by that? We should never forget what life was like before Christ. We should never forget where we were without his hope, without his grace, without his... We should never forget that. Because once we forget that, we get jaded. And once we get there, then we're not nearly as patient with people and loving towards people as we should be because we forgot what life was like before Christ. We need to remember what the crisis of belief is in our life. And here's the amazing thing about God that I love so much is God keeps showing up. When I was uh, 
at camp years ago as a kid, uh, we used to have campfire times, and kids would share testimonies. And uh, I used to call it beat that testimony, because like the first kid would stand up, and he'd be like, well, that's been a really rough school year, you know. Uh, I cheated a few times, and the next kid stand up, yeah. Yeah, I cheated, and I, I did beat my mother. You know, then the next kid, yeah, I, I cheated, I beat my mother, and, uh, you know, I killed someone. You know, it just goes on and on. It's like, beat that testimony. And then you get kind of feeling bad, like, I got a pretty boring testimony. I got nothing, you know. Man, can I have your testimony? That, that, that works. You know, you just get into that whole testimony. And sometimes we live life as if there's only one conversion. Like, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. It really wasn't that amazing. There wasn't any rainbows or unicorns. or there's a, I just gave my life to Christ. But you know what? That's not how the relationship with God works. He converts us all the time. He's constantly moving. And this crisis of belief, do you actually think there's only one time that we have a crisis? How many of you have had at least two in the last month? Am I the only one? Okay, this doesn't go away. This whole crisis, it's a process. And here's what I love about God. He just keeps showing up. He just, and here's what I, I really believe. He shows up many times through other people. In 92, um, we were on a missions trip uh, down in Juarez, Mexico. And this is before the days of cell phones. And so we're down in Mexico, and that meant I wasn't going to call home for several days. So uh, the last night we were there with our group, uh, we went across into El Paso to, to see a ball game. And then I got, remember the old phone cards? Get out my phone card. And I called back. My wife's staying with her folks at the farm. And when I, I called her sister, picked up the phone, and I said, is Marie there? And then there was this really long pause. And that was kind of strange. And she said, um, Marie's really not She's not doing really well now. And I said, well, what do you mean? Well, can I talk to her? And she goes, um, it's a long pause. She's in the hospital. And she's really heavily sedated. She really can't talk right now. So you need to just call back tomorrow sometime. I'll give you an update. That's not a good, that's not a good phone call. So we're wrapping up the missions trip, and my head's spinning. I'm like, can I get home? Can I fly out? I'm calling the airlines and nothing. And so that night, we had our closing service. We always would have a candlelight service. And every time we'd have a candlelight service, we'd have a candle, and we'd say, this week, how did Jesus show up? And we'd just start the candle, and each student would tell his story. And we got in this circle, and a high school student stood up. And he said, John, here's the deal. You're the one always talking about Jesus showing up, and you're the one that's always helping us. So tonight... Why don't you let us help you? Don't say anything else the rest of the night. Let us just love you. God showed up. He showed up in the lives of a bunch of high school kids. And you know what? He shows up in your life too all the time. He shows up through other people, through conversations. He shows up in countless ways, and he's constantly reaching out and saying, I know you're broken. I know you're hurting. I know you're on this road and you don't know where you're headed, but I, I got to tell you, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, and he's reaching out and he's reaching out and he gives us choice through the brokenness and he loves us. You know what that's called? That's called grace because we can't explain it. And honestly, in ministry, um, that's what keeps me going. As I can't tell you, all the years I've seen God's grace work through the lives of others, and it just becomes so real how God is working. Years ago, I watched a movie 
And just so you know, there's some really graphic scenes. We're not showing that, but there's some graphic scenes in the movies called Amistad. And Spielberg wanted people to experience what it was like to capture human beings and throw them on a boat, on a slave boat, and how brutal that whole process was. So that's, there's a section of that movie you can't hardly get through when he shows you what's going on. And there's a picture of an individual in that movie who honestly didn't even have any lines in the movie, but I never forgot the image, and we're going to pull that image up. The reason is that guy is a slave ship, slave ship owner. And you know what his responsibility is? As that ship is sailing from one port to the next, he determines who's going to live and who's going to die before they even get to the next port. Because he already knows we've got too many people on this boat. So he will just start killing people randomly. Uh, sometimes they'd actually tie these huge stones onto their feet and they just throw them off the side. That's this guy, okay? To say the least, this is not a very nice person. Tony just sang a song. Anybody remember the song we just did for communion? Amazing Grace. The guy that wrote that, his name is John Newton. And do you know what his occupation was when he penned that? He was a slave ship owner. This guy, when he says a wretch, he was a wretch. And he never forgot that. He never forgot. I was so wretched that I treated people like dogs. I was so wretched, I would do anything for profit. I was so lost, I never dreamed I could be found. And yet Jesus Christ was there for me. How could I possibly describe that? I would say it's amazing. So next time you sing Amazing Grace, I just want you to think no matter where you're at, His grace is still amazing. And it's for everybody in this room is God's grace. So in a moment here, we're going to sing an invitation. It's the one that we do every week. And it's just a time to, to surrender to God. And if nothing else, you may be at a point in your life that you just need for us to pray with you. And as you know, we have a prayer room. I'm going to ask our elders and their wives if they'll just come up and be available to pray with you. And here's the other thing. When the service is over, even though we're moving things around, I'm going to be up here, our elders, again, their wives, the prayer. We're here for you because I, I firmly believe this. You start on your knees. You start, you start by saying, God... You've laid somebody on your heart. Or, God, there's something going on in my life I need to do with. And I don't know what to do with it. We're here to pray with you. It's interesting. Saul's name means asked or inquired of God. And his name was converted to Paul, which means humble. His entire life changed. Not because of a conversion, but because he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. And that's where all of us need to be. Surrendering our life to Jesus Christ as we stand and sing.